morning for some of you. I may be a new face. My name is Chris Anderson. I'm the pastor of our Lebanon campus, and I am uh, thrilled to be here this morning. Pastor Brad and I, about once a quarter, uh, switch places, and so he's up there uh, in Lebanon preaching this morning. I forgot how good he has it. He just has to walk out of his office and walk onto stage, right? And so last night, uh, I gave him 12 things that he needed to remember to do this morning, how to unlock the doors, turn on the heat, make the coffee, and run the sound. And so he got back with me, and he's like, really, only, only 12 things? Um, but man, God is doing such amazing things up there. Uh, I look out and see so many faces that have visited us. That's such a critical part of our uh, growth story is having you come and participate in what God is doing in Lebanon. He's doing some amazing things. Uh, growth is not always the determining factor of, of, of how we're doing, but it is uh, something that's important in the life of uh, where we're at. And we have nearly doubled in size in the seven or eight months since we've been uh, in Lebanon uh, in two weeks. Uh, we're going to have our our second baptism, and we have uh, three people uh, right now, maybe more, that are going to be baptized in two weeks. One young lady uh, lives in the apartments next door and came and has uh, given her life to Christ, and she'll be baptized. And uh, just some neat stories of what uh, God is doing there and how people are growing in their Christ-likeness. And so we're always uh, thrilled to have you and invite you every week. Um, there is uh, only one service there, and so that is nice. In fact, I think that's why Brad likes going up there, even though there's all the other things to do, right? So I forgot. I walked off to stage and went home. My wife called me and says, no, quick, you got to come back. There's still two services. And so here we are together. Um, this past week, um, my wife and I had some, uh, a chance to travel out west, kind of a chance to unplug uh, for four or five days, and it was uh, wonderful, relaxing, got a little bit of sunlight. In fact, as the girls were talking about um, a snow delay at their school, um, we were sitting by the pool and um, in 75-degree weather under palm trees, and so uh, we came back. It was quite the experience of coming back and having to scrape the ice off our cars when we got back, or off our car. Um, yesterday, I took uh, my youngest, Rachel, uh, out to lunch, and as we were headed to Chipotle, she said, Dad, are you preaching at the Liberty Campus tomorrow? I said, I am. She said, are we still in Corinthians? And I said, we are. And uh, we're going to be here until the Lord comes back. Um, <laughs> but hey, here, here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and so that's the good news. We've moved on from chapter 7, and the church at Corinth is arguably the most dysfunctional church of all time. And Paul is the voice of the impassioned church planner who patiently, right, for the most part, addressing the specific conflicts that were dividing this young church. And now that we've finally made it through not four, but five weeks of marriage is messy, let's turn our sights back to a much less awkward, but unfortunately equally confusing issue this morning. And the issue, the controversy today is how to handle eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't know about you, but we have never experienced this uh, exact problem in the Anderson house. Uh, but believe it or not, even though this is something that's maybe foreign to our culture, this problem still exists around the world as Christians uh, are saved out of idolatrous religions. And so whether or not this has been an issue directly for you, uh, let me tell you why this is still a relevant discussion today. During the past several generations, uh, some of the strongest debate among fundamentalists and evangelicals has centered around questionable practices. And these are practices that many people feel are wrong, but are not specifically 
forbidden in Scripture. When I was growing up, some of these key issues that we debated were drinking alcohol. In fact, that really wasn't a gray area back then. That was black and white. Um, Smoking, playing cards, dancing. God forbid uh, we would ever dance. Styles of music. Going to the movies was hotly debated. You may remember that. Uh, Working or playing sports on Sunday. Uh, Getting tattoos. That was the granddaddy of all taboos. And one of the reasons that we spent so much time arguing, arguing over these issues is because the Bible does not specifically forbid them. Now, some of the sins of our culture are pretty easy to navigate. They're addressed in the Bible. Stealing, murder, slander, adultery, right? We understand those things. The Bible's pretty clear about them. The Bible's also pretty clear about loving and worshiping God and serving and loving our neighbors and serving the poor and helping them out and so on and so forth. We would call these things black and white. We would call them wrong or right. But what about those things that aren't black and white? What about those gray areas In every age since the church was established, starting back in the Corinth and including our church here in Ohio in 2020, we've had to deal with issues of gray area in Christian living. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn not to chapter 7, but today to chapter 8. We're advancing as we continue our beautiful mess series and this message titled, Making a Difference. While you're turning there, you may remember back in 2012 when New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg Obviously, he's come back on the scenes again, but do you remember when he announced Bloomberg's Big Gulp ban? And his ban, his plan was to ban the sale of sugary beverages that were larger than 16 ounces. And so uh, he thought this would be a step forward in reducing the overall obesity of his city, improve the overall health. And so the ban was to apply to both bottled sodas and, and fountain drinks containing more than 25 calories per 8 ounces. And so think about this. In New York City, where there's over 20,000 restaurants and coffee shops and food carts and uh, movie theaters and baseball stadiums, they would no longer be able to sell empty calories and supersized portions. Do you remember this? It seems uh, so long ago. It was just in 2012. Ultimately, the New York Supreme Court struck this down, and they said that this, his plan was arbitrary and capricious, but not before his big gulp plan uh, became the punchline for night Uh, night talk shows, and Bloomberg found himself the object of ridicule. But listen to what he did. He identified a problem. He had a strong conviction to solve it, and he believed that he had the authority uh, to make his opinion law, and he may have been right about this problem, and his proposed solution may just have made a difference. But here's what we're going to see this morning. Just because you're right, just because you're in charge, doesn't mean that you're going to make a difference. So let's see what in the world Michael Bloomberg has to do with the church in Corinth by reading the first, um, let's start with the first eight verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may uh, be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So right away, Paul is addressing this problem that he had the answer to. He was right about this issue. And he probably could have used his authority as an apostle several times, especially in the pastoral epistles. He was known to open up uh, a letter and say, listen, this is written to you by Paul under the authority as an apostle. But in this case, he didn't choose to shove this down the believer's uh, throats in Corinthians. Paul knew something that apparently Michael Bloomberg uh, did not know. That what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior is interpreted by our love for the people that we influence. And so let's see how this plays out in this passage this morning. This passage breaks nicely into three different sections. We just read through the first two sections. But let's look at this first section where Paul is really saying, let love, not knowledge, be your trump card. Now some of you are all excited because we're talking about Trump and we just talked about Bloomberg. And finally we get to talk about politics and church. Not so. Remember that much of 1 Corinthians is a response to specific controversies and questions that they had written to Paul. And so we go all the way back to uh, chapter 7, verse 1, and we know that uh, the rest of this chapter is in response to these questions that they had written them. So it's no surprise here that here's another issue that the church in Corinth was divided over. And so let's step back and look uh, contextually at what was happening in this culture. So the Romans and the Greeks, they actually believed that there were many, many evil spirits that were constantly trying to invade human beings. And one of the best ways for an evil spirit to invade a human being uh, was to attach themselves to the food that was being eaten. And they believed that the only way that the spirits could be removed from this food was to offer this food to one of their gods. And so by sacrificing this food, it gained the favor of the god and cleansed this meat from demonic contamination. Now, there was so much food that was sacrificed to the idols that it was actually, um, the leftover food was sold in the marketplace. In fact, almost everything that was available to buy was food that had been sacrificed. And in many ways, this food was highly sought after because it was cleansed of the evil spirits. So there was no evil spirits in this food. And so in every single social setting, whether it was the marketplace, whether it was the restaurants at that time, or whether it was a wedding or some event that was catered in, you could not escape the fact that this idle food was always being served. And so the Christians responded in one of three ways. There's this one group of believers that believed that the spirits of the pagan gods were absorbed in this meat. And so by eating this meat, they had uh, an opportunity to be possessed by demons if they ate it. So that's the first group. The second group of people had formerly been involved in pagan worship. And they didn't believe that the meat actually was possessed. But they didn't want to do anything that reminded them of their former life. Then there was this third group, and they understood that an idol was just a block of wood. It was just a a block of stone. It had no power over. It couldn't contaminate the meat uh, that had been sacrificed to these gods. And so of these three opinions, undoubtedly, Paul belongs to this third group. As a Jew, he had no pagan past, right, to be reminded of uh, as he ate this idolized meat. And so as he worshipped the one true God, he knew, in verse 4 it says, an idol is nothing. Now he could have pressed the point to the believers that, he was, uh, that were dealing with this problem. And he could have told them, listen, get over yourselves. You can go ahead and eat the meat. He might have even argued that they should, in fact, eat the meat as a sign to the rest of culture that the world's pagan gods had no power over the believers. But instead, Paul introduces this important principle before he ever deals with the topic. Notice in verse 1 out, it starts out, it says, now concerning this food that was sacrificed to idols, and then he makes a quick left turn. 
He says, now, we all know that all of us possess knowledge. And this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. All of us possess knowledge. How true is this? Think about an issue that you know a lot about, right? So when I was growing up, I loved uh, trivia, and I would uh, fill my mind with trivia, and my dad would tease me, now my kids tease me, that I have lots of little-known facts of very little interest. But uh, that's what I like to put in my mind. And so I love to study presidents. I love, love to study all the little quirky things about presidents that you might not know about. So for instance, our 10th president, John Tyler, He was born in 1790. He served from 1841 to 1843. And did you know that today he has two living grandchildren? Not great-grandchildren, not great-great-grandchildren. He has two living grandchildren. They're in their 90s. Bet you didn't know that. See? See how smart I am. Now, you guys are all going to Google real fast. Trust me, I already did just to make sure that I was right. Maybe for you it's sports. Maybe for you it's politics or, God forbid, Star Trek or even worse, maybe you're a Star Wars junkie. And have you ever noticed that when you talk to people that don't know, don't have all the knowledge that you know, you look down on them, right? Like, for instance, if I were to talk to you, uh, do you know that our 12th president, Zachary Taylor, he was a a war hero, a survivor of the Mexican-American War. He was our first tough guy as a president. And what killed him, he ate a bowl of spoiled cherries and a glass of warm milk. That's what did him in. Did you know that? See, I'm so smart. And so it's easy to look down on people that aren't as well-informed as we are. Has your knowledge puffed you up? Apply this spiritually. Think about all the things in Corinth and all the things that these Christians knew and how they knew that these idols had no power over them. And so don't you think that they looked scornfully on people uh, that had problems with going to a barbecue and eating this idolized meat? And so let's turn the tables here. Let's apply this to some of the things that you know today, some of the things in your spiritual maturity that you've grown to um, have some freedoms in. And so you know that there's nothing wrong with letting your kids trick-or-treat at Halloween. But how do you react to the parents who have strong convictions against it? You know that playing Texas Hold'em with your family members on your annual camping trip is innocent fun. But how do you respond to the wife of your uncle who's battled a gambling addiction for years and asked you to skip this tradition this year? You know that the Bible really doesn't prohibit all instances of drinking adult beverages, right? You know that you can wash your car on a Sunday. You know that you can watch something other than a PG-13 movie, maybe even a rated R movie, like for the violence, right? You know all these things. But despite all this knowledge that we supposedly have, how do we respond to a Christian brother or sister who has different convictions? Here's the point I'm trying to make. Uh, Murder, theft, adultery, those are easy ones, right? These aren't areas in which we uh, exercise our freedom in Christ. But the Bible doesn't address every single issue that sincere Christians are divided over. Look at the end of verse 1 again. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so in those areas that we're divided over, we have to repeatedly ask ourselves this question, am I responding with what I know, or at least think I know, or am I responding with love? Think of the little guy that's afraid of the dark. Listen, if you're a parent, you know that he is not assured by the belittling attitude of an older sibling that tells them how silly they are for being scared of the shadows. And evidently, this is what was happening in the church with the stronger Christians. They were mature in knowledge, but they were weak in brotherly love. 
Listen to verses 2 and 3. I read this from a paraphrased translation. Uh, The Living Bible. If anyone thinks he knows all the answers, he's just showing his ignorance. But the person who truly loves God is the one who is open to God's knowledge. Paul's saying, listen, love is the key to our behavior. Like knowing what is not forbidden is not enough. What Paul's saying here is that you have to understand that love sets the limits of our Christian liberties. And so that's what Paul's teaching us in this first section. Now we're going to do a quick flyover for the sake of time this morning over the next five verses, verses four through eight. Let me just quickly tell you, um, now he goes back, you know, in first, verse one he got sidetracked, but now he goes back in these next five verses and he actually teaches um, the nothingness of idols and the everythingness of Christ, right? He teaches that an idol, an idol means nothing, but Christ is everything. In other words, Paul's spirit-informed conscience allowed him to, the freedom to eat this leftover meat. Now, in the process of explaining this, of, of teaching through this, he actually refers, in one of these verses, to those that couldn't eat this meat as having a weak conscience. Now, before we get too judgmental, let's stop for a minute and just remember where these Christians had come from. Okay, they had been only recently removed from the idolatry of their culture, and no doubt they had even witnessed the demon possession. And when they came to Christ, they said, I don't want anything to do with that ever again. In fact, their conscience said, we'll never, ever eat that meat again. Never eat this food. And now it's not helping that the big brother is making fun of them for being scared of the dark. And I'm sure they were saying to their big brothers, listen, you, don't, you haven't seen what we've seen. You haven't seen what's lurking in these dark shadows. And so this was the impasse that was facing the church at Corinth. And here's the deal, no one was willing to compromise. And so listen to how Paul responds. Let's look at the last set of verses, beginning in verse 9. And this is where Paul's saying, listen, you need to choose between making a point or making a difference. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees that you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered by idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make someone stumble. One of my favorite quotes from Pastor Andy Stanley is that it's easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. And this is the rule that guides my social media presence. I know truth, right? I have a lot of answers to a lot of the silly things that come across my feed in Facebook. But in my quest to make a point, am I losing my power? Am I losing my ability to influence these people to really make a difference in their lives? Listen, Paul knew about the insignificance of idols and the fact that there was nothing sinful eating meat sacrificed to them. But listen, rather than trying to make a point, he wanted to make a difference. This was Mayor Bloomberg's problem back in 2012. He knew he was right when it came to the health crisis that our country is experiencing. But because of the way he shoved this truth down the throats of New Yorkers, he ended up failing to make any kind of difference in their lives. Look back at verse 10 real quickly. Paul talks about the person whose conscience is weak. Let's park here for just a minute. What's your conscience? The word conscience simply means to know with. 
The word's used 32 times in the New Testament. One commentator describes it this way. He said that our conscience is the internal court where our actions are approved or condemned. Listen, our conscience is not the law, but it does bear witness to God's moral law. Here's the important thing to understand about our conscience. Our conscience depends on knowledge. And so the more spiritual knowledge that we have and act on, the stronger our conscience becomes. And so some Christians have weak consciences because they've been saved for such a short amount of time that they really haven't had the opportunity to grow yet. And so no no doubt this is what was happening uh, with believers in Corinth. Think of the babies um, that needed to be carefully guarded and protected. As we were getting ready to get on our plane on Friday for about a four and a half or a three and a half hour flight, there were parents in the line with babies. And that's like, oh no. And so everybody in the everybody was trying to look at their tickets and see what seats they had. Like, are they going to be near us? And it was just me and Shannon, so that meant there were extra seats in our row, and please not us. And so they're walking down the aisle, and sure enough, they sit down right behind us. This little girl, she had to been seven or eight months old. Uh, she was just a doll. And during most of the flight, she slept in her mother's arms. And her mom had her arms wrapped around that baby. Um, she didn't have a seatbelt on, the little thing. Uh, but she was holding her as tight as if she had a seatbelt on. And nothing was going to happen to that little girl. That's the picture of some of these younger Christians that haven't had a chance yet to develop. There's another type of of a person with a weak conscience. I don't know where I first heard this term, uh, but somebody once said uh, or referred to somebody as a professional weaker brother. And this person has a weak conscience but won't grow because they ignore the Bible. Oftentimes they remain in the state of infancy because they're anonymous in the church's discipleship process. This is exactly what Paul was referring to back in chapter 3 when he said this. He said, there's jealousy and there's strife amongst you because you're infants in Christ. And the whole reason that I'm feeding you milk is because you're not ready for solid food yet. But I think the picture that Paul's painting here of the weaker brother is the believer that remains weak because they're afraid of freedom. This isn't the baby that sat behind us that needs protected and guarded. This is the believer that's actually old enough to ride the school bus to school every day, but is so scared that makes mom or dad continue to drive them to school. And because this person is spiritually weak... Paul says their conscience is easily defiled, verse 7, that they're easily wounded, verse 12, and that they're easily made to stumble in verse 13. Now, undoubtedly, the tone of this question to Paul was that of an older brother asking him, uh, asking the dad to tell the little brother once and for all how stupid he was for being scared of the dark. And listen how Paul turns the tables. He steps back and he says, no, listen, what eternal difference are you actually going to make in the life of a weaker saint by being all puffed up in your knowledge and by uh, displaying all these freedoms that you have in Christ? In fact, Paul says, when you try to bully these people into intimidating you, you're actually wounding them. These people were so busy patting themselves on the back. In verse 4, when Paul agreed with them that there was no spiritual harm in eating this leftover food, and then Paul turns the table and says, listen, do you want to make a point here, or do you want to make a difference? Now, if I'm honest with myself, oftentimes when that question is asked of me, it's like, I want to win. I want to win the argument, right? And Paul says, great, you win. But I want to make a difference. And then it gets worse for the stronger brother. Look at verses 11 and 12. And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Paul says, not only are you causing them to stumble, he says, you're sinning against Christ in the process. And Paul didn't want to lose that right. He didn't want to lose the ability, the influence that he had to disciple this weaker believer by leading them into sin. He didn't want to push his point of view. Listen, he could have said my way or the highway. He was an apostle. And instead, he was willing to limit his freedom for the sake of a weaker brother and sister who was still trying to figure out what this freedom was all about. There's a beautiful picture of this in Philippians chapter 2. And it's such a beautiful example of of, uh, giving up your freedoms. It speaks of Jesus Christ in verse 5, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In fact, because of this, Jesus gave him a name which was above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that same Jesus set aside the freedom of heaven to make an eternal difference in our lives, and that's the difference here that Paul is trying to make. And so Paul concludes this chapter with practical application of how we're to both exercise and restrain the freedom we have in Christ. Listen, he doesn't argue that believers are not free to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. And notice he's not talking about our freedom offending a a weaker brother or sister. He's not saying that the knowledgeable Christian has to abandon their freedom to uh, to the ignorant prejudice of this professional weaker brother. The issue is whether exercising our freedom causes a weaker brother or sister to sin. That's the question here. It isn't about someone thinking less of you when they see you doing something. It's about will they think less of Christ because they follow your example. Let's go back to one of our earlier examples. Yes, you are free to play Texas Hold'em. But you willingly restrain that freedom if it will lead your uncle with a gambling addiction back into a self-destructive pattern. Listen, knowledge is still important. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have spent the middle part of this passage teaching on the nothingness of idols and the everythingness of Christ. But how do you express this knowledge? Is it expressed in love? Is it wrapped in tenderness? Here's a good way to self-assess whether or not what we're doing is wrapped in love. Are you willing to set that right aside in order to make a difference in someone's life or is it more important to you to be right? Holy Spirit's asking this question through the text this morning. I can't answer it for you. Several years ago, I had a friend who was a youth pastor. It was right at the advent of social media. And he was constantly posting pictures of himself drinking beer in a restaurant. In fact, I was with him one time and he literally moved his glass over so that it was in the, the picture frame. And I asked him once if this was the wisest thing to do in light of the fact that he was a youth pastor. And so he wanted to turn the conversation in this debate about whether or not it was a sin to drink responsibly. And I never argued with him. It wasn't my intention to get into a debate. I wasn't even uh, arguing with him about that. I just responded by saying, I think you're missing the point. Listen to his response. He said, given the freedom I have in Christ to drink, it would make me a hypocrite if I tried to hide it from people. But look how the Apostle Paul would have responded in that conversation. Look at verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Listen, he was willing, God forbid, to be a vegetarian the rest of his life if it meant keeping somebody from sin. He was willing to set aside that right. I will never eat meat again. 
if it affords me the opportunity to make a difference in my brother's life. He was saying, my rights, my right to be right, I set it aside for the sake of the gospel. And can you say that this morning? We always like to make things very practical, so we want to leave you with some practical steps, in fact, some practical questions that you can ask yourself as you navigate a, a gray area. And so we call this what to do when you don't know what to do. And so write these questions down. The first question is, will it benefit me spiritually? Now this question is going to come up in another couple chapters. In chapter 10, verse 23, Paul says this, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify and so the second part of this, this uh, verse, he's talking about uh, profitable, profitable, something that's useful, advantageous to me, to edify is to build me up spiritually. So based on this verse, ask yourself, will this enhance my spiritual life? Will this cultivate godliness? Will it build me up spiritually? And if not, then you should seriously question whether or not this behavior is your best choice. Here's the second question to ask. Does it have the potential to enslave me? Now, this verse that we just quoted from chapter 10 sounds a lot like a verse we studied around Thanksgiving in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's saying, I will not be brought under the power of anything out there. And so, this thing that you're considering, does it have the potential of becoming habit-forming? And if so, why pursue it? Don't allow yourself to be in bondage, Paul says, to anything else. Paul said, the only thing I'm in bondage to is I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Here's the third question. What would love require of me? And Paul gives us this answer in today's text. Verse 8 says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In other words, food in this situation is spiritually neutral. But, he says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is the principle of love. And the famous chapter uh, on, on, on love is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But also in Romans 13, Paul speaks of this and says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore it is the fulfillment of the law. And so if you know that your choice, this thing that you're looking at is within bounds, it's approved, but it causes another brother or sister uh, to stumble in sin, listen, love that brother and sister enough to restrict your own freedom. That's what love really looks like. And that's not very popular in a self-absorbed society, but it is biblical to continue to indulge in this legitimate freedom, but it causes somebody else to sin. That's not loving. Here's the fourth question to ask yourselves. Can I do it in faith? Can I do it in faith? Romans 14, 23, Pastor Brad shared this verse last week as he was walking through his conscience and how it's developed over the years to where he won't uh, perform a marriage ceremony for someone that has a prenuptial. And, and this verse in Romans 14, again, is actually dealing with this issue of uh, eating this meat that was fed to idols. And it says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. In other words, if your conscience is, is causing you to doubt whether or not you should do that, and you still do it because you're not eating from faith, then whatever is not from faith is sin. So obviously the same issue was an issue for the church in Rome. It's an issue later in chapter 10, as we said. And so Paul's saying in all three of these passages, uh, listen, never train yourself to violate your conscience. And if your conscience is troubled by what you're doing, then don't do it. If you aren't sure about what you're doing, then don't do it. Can I do it in faith? And then the last question, will it glorify God? 
And most of us understand and have heard this verse. We maybe even memorized it, 1 Corinthians 10.31. But look at where it's coming on the heels of. It's coming on the heels of this conversation about eating meat served to idols. And it says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. And so what you're about to do, is that going to bring God glory? We can look at it from another angle. Would participating in this cause others to have a diminished view of God's glory? And if that's the answer, then maybe we should step away and not do this very thing because it won't bring glory to God, even though you have a legitimate freedom to do it. And so five questions, five principles, how to navigate a gray area with wisdom. Will it benefit me spiritually? Does it have the potential to enslave me? What would love require of me? Can I do it by faith? And will it glorify God? A blind man in a small village would often travel about at night with a lantern in one hand and a cane in his other hand. One day a friend asked him why he carried this lantern since he was actually blind. And he replied with a smile, it's quite simple. I carry this lantern to keep other people from stumbling over me. So Liberty Heights Church, may that be our prayer this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we Take a minute just to do inventory in our own lives and in our own hearts. So what the text is asking this morning is how do you respond in these areas in which you found freedom? Again, the debate is not whether or not you can or can't do these things. It's, uh, it's a gray area, and so God has given us the freedom to allow the word to influence our consciences, and we can honestly come to different conclusions. But when someone's come to a conclusion that's differently than yours, honestly, how do you respond? Are you like me that always feels the need to be right? I grew up in a church in a generation where we used the Bible to beat people over the head. And all you have to do is be on social media for about five minutes to see it's still happening today. Are you losing your ability to make a difference in someone's lives because you're busy trying to make a point? Do you have influence in those lives around you, especially the people that don't know Jesus Christ? Allow the gospel this morning to do surgery in your heart. We say it all the time that Scripture is not a set of rules. It's not a curriculum to be mastered. In fact, many of the instances today, there are no rules on these specific things. And so instead, we hold up Scripture as a mirror. And we look into it and we let it penetrate our hearts. So what is the gospel asking of you this morning? For some of you this morning, maybe the gospel is exposing your need for a Savior. We never want to walk out of here without giving you the opportunity to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The gospel says that all of our good works are but filthy rags. And it doesn't matter what we do, we're all going to fall short of the glory of God. We're going to fall short of the example of Jesus that we are given what holiness looks like. And so if that's you this morning that's come to that realization, I want to help walk you through a prayer this morning. There's not a magic prayer. There's not magic words. 
In fact, the Bible doesn't even say there has to be a specific prayer, but right there in the quietness of your seat this morning, you can have a conversation with the master creator of the universe, with the God of gods. And it might sound something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, become convicted that I'm living my life outside of a relationship with you. And I understand that when I compare my life to the life of Jesus, that I fall short of your glory, of the standards that you've set for holiness. And your word says because of that, that the wages of sin is death. God, it also says that the gift of God is eternal life. And so this morning I want to claim that eternal life. And so I ask forgiveness. I confess, agree with you about my sin. ask you to take it from me. God, allow me the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to turn and run in the other direction. Give me a new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, this morning there are people in this room, I'm sure this morning, that you are standing at the door of their heart and that you are knocking. God, I pray this morning that they would be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They would pray a prayer of repentance and forgiveness. And God, for those in this room this morning that claim a relationship with you, that have studied through and have knowledge of these gray areas and your word has informed them, your spirit has guided them as they've come to these conclusions and as they have these freedoms in Christ and as they practice these freedoms in Christ, God, at the end of the day, will we remember what Paul said to wrap it all in love? And that what good is it if we win the argument, if we beat somebody over the head with the Bible with this truth and yet we don't have love for them? May it never be so in our lives and so grow us in this capacity this morning. God, we're grateful for your church. We're grateful for what you're doing here and all of our campuses. Grateful for the opportunity to stand before these friends and family this morning to preach the word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.